is Jesus' last words to his men. This is his farewell address. Jesus is leaving his disciples, but he's not leaving them alone. They won't be orphans. For another helper, in fact, another of the same kind, a helper similar to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is going to take up where Jesus has left off in the training of his disciples and in the building up of the church. I like to call the Holy Spirit the super sub. He takes Jesus' role in the lives of his disciples. And you know what? The church never misses a beat. In the last few verses now of chapter 15, Jesus mentions the helper again. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 26 of John chapter 15. Jesus says, But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and catch this this title for the Holy Spirit, he calls him the helper. The word translated in the Greek is parakletos, which means to come alongside to help. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us at all times. He comes He walks with us to lead us and to guide us and to encourage us and to protect us. He, he in essence, is our bodyguard. I love what A.B. Simpson says about the Holy Spirit. He calls him a God at hand, one by our side, one that we may call upon in every emergency. I like that, a God at hand. The Holy Spirit is at work in us and for us and through us. It's great to have a helper. Think of a talented college athlete who suddenly turns pro. He's a kid who signs that big contract and comes into instant wealth. This is similar to what happens to us when we become Christians. We suddenly have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're just poured out on us. Well, usually this young athlete's first move is to hire an agent. This agent negotiates the details of his contract and invests his windfall and then protects his client's interests. And then he counsels this kid on how to handle his notoriety and his prosperity. And sometimes the agent even teaches the young man some life skills. He helps him become a successful professional. He tries to groom him into a marketable celebrity. All this goes on. This agent becomes his personal mentor and handler. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Think of the Holy Spirit as the combination of a coach and a big brother and a mentor and a counselor and a trainer and a bodyguard. You know, I like to call the Holy Spirit is our handler. The Holy Spirit is our handler. He's molding us into the image of Jesus and he's protecting us from evil influences And he's grooming us into a marketable witness. Any job becomes easier when you have a helper. And we have a helper in the Holy Spirit. And here's the Spirit's job in a nutshell. Jesus says, He will testify of me. The undergirding ministry of the Holy Spirit is he testifies of Jesus. His job is to draw the spotlight to Jesus, to keep bringing God's people back to God's Son. You know, when I grew up, the host of The Tonight Show wasn't Conan O'Brien, nor was it even Jay Leno. No, the dean of all talk show hosts was Johnny Carson. 
You probably remember Johnny Carson. I'm not that old. Johnny Carson. And yet one of the keys to Johnny Carson's success was a man that you probably haven't heard of. His longtime producer, Freddie de Cordova. In fact, one night while filming the show, the camera panned off stage and focused on Freddie de Cordova. This was both unusual and it was unplanned. And when Freddie realized that the camera was on him, he became furious. He started shouting, no, 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 get the camera on Johnny. He's the star. And this is the attitude of the Holy Spirit. His job is not to attract attention to himself, but to focus the spotlight on Jesus, to keep putting the spotlight on Jesus. Jesus is the star. The Holy Spirit is the backstage director. And the Spirit's job is to testify of Jesus, which makes for an interesting observation. This may sound odd to you, but think it through. It's true. A church that's preoccupied with the Holy Spirit and always talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus is not being led by the Holy Spirit at all. Some charismatic churches get so wrapped up in the things of the Spirit that they forget about Jesus. They neglect His Lordship. The church that's truly Spirit-led will be attracted to and all about Jesus Christ. For it is the Spirit's job to testify of Jesus. Well, John 15 ends, And you also will bear witness... Because you have been with him from the beginning. The disciples also testified of Jesus. In fact, they had unprecedented access to Jesus. Imagine being one of those 12 disciples. The things that you had seen and the things that you'd heard and the wonderful experiences that you've had. They had unprecedented access to Jesus and therefore the responsibility of reporting to the world the life of Jesus. They were witnesses of Jesus. And of course, this was... uh, found its fruition in the writing of the New Testament. Chapter 16 begins, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Notice excommunication from the synagogues. This was persecution from the Jews. That was just the tip of the iceberg. For Rome would also hate the Christians. Jesus continues, And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Now Jesus is being brutally honest here with his disciples. He's telling them that the road ahead is not going to be easy. That persecution looms on the horizon. Their only consolation is that they have a helper. You know, too often we talk to a new or prospective convert about the love of Jesus and the joy and the blessings that they'll find in Christ. And we say nothing of the persecution that will also come. Well, 2,000 years later, the road is still full of potholes and we need to be honest about it. 
I mean, we shouldn't scare people needlessly, of course. But Jesus kept his disciples from stumbling because he was straightforward with them about really what really laid ahead. What they were really getting into. And you likewise are going to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. You're going to, to have people oppose you as well. And we need to be honest about it. Jesus explained the nature of that persecution and then how they should respond. Here he tells them that their fellow Jews are going to consider killing a Christian doing God a favor. They're going to consider it a service to kill a Christian. You remember Acts chapter 9, there was a rabbi. He was from Tarsus and his name was Saul. And he adopted this very attitude. He was going around killing these Christians thinking that he was doing God a favor. In 325 A.D., 325 is the date, a council of 318 church leaders met in the Persian town of Nicaea to nail down the doctrine of the deity of Jesus and to disperse the false doctrines that were floating around at the time. The creed that was produced at Nicaea is probably the most definitive statement on the deity of Jesus that's ever been written. In the creed, he is said to be very God of very God, the Nicene Creed. Nicaea, though, was a celebrated convocation. Understand, for three centuries prior to Nicaea, the church had been an underground movement. Believers had lived and the church had grown in the crosshairs crosshairs of Roman belligerence. Just prior to Nicaea, though, the Roman emperor Constantine had become a Christian. And he had legalized Christianity. And at Nicaea, for the first time in the history of the church, for the first time in the 300-year history, the three centuries of church history, church leaders were able to gather openly without fear of reprisal. And so they gathered there in Nicaea, these 318 church leaders. Here is a moment where you wish you could have been there. Imagine the men in attendance that day. The 318 delegates had come from all over Christendom. There was a pastor there who was from Egypt who had one eye. The Romans had plucked out his other eye, had plucked it out of its socket, when he refused to deny his loyalty to Jesus. Three men had ugly scars across their faces. A few of the pastors there at Nicaea limped on one leg. Most everyone in the room had lost some appendage, an arm or a hand or a finger or an ear. It had been lopped off in persecution when they failed failed to deny Jesus. A lot of the pastors had burn marks from scalding hot oil that had been poured on them. And no doubt every back in the room had a crisscross of scars where they had been beaten for Jesus' sake. These men had weathered decades of persecution. Members of their churches had been slaughtered by the gladiators and fed to the lions. These men were proof of the triumph of Christianity. For as Jesus told his disciples, the road would be hard, but the helper would ensure their endurance.
The Holy Spirit had been there for them for those first three centuries of persecution and had kept them safe, had got them through. And the Council of Nicaea was proof that Christianity had triumphed, that Jesus had made his church overcomers. Verse 5 tells us, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The Lord's departure meant the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And even though I'm sure it was hard to conceptualize at the time, Jesus knew that this would be an advantage. The man, Christ Jesus, was limited to one place at one time. The Spirit, though, would be with all believers in all places, in all times. For Christianity to go global, it was necessary for Jesus to be replaced by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful and true is St. Augustine's prayer. You ascended from before our eyes, and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Jesus departed, but the Holy Spirit came in his place. Jesus left an empty tomb to fill our empty hearts. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now during his ministry, Jesus upset the apple cart Jesus flip-flopped the rules. He changed all of the rules concerning religion. Jesus redefined sin and true righteousness and judgment. And now it's the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus says, to convince the world that he was right and that everyone else is wrong. His job is to convict the world, first of all, of sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. You remember in Judaism, sin was a picky violation of some rabbinical rule. Sin was a code infraction. It was a breach of law. But the Holy Spirit's job was to define sin as an affront to a person, Jesus. Sin is the rejection of Jesus. It's a breach of love, not of law. Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders Now the only unpardonable sin is that of spurning him. Well, he also convicts the world of righteousness. And why? Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now remember again, the Pharisees, they stressed an outward righteousness, a righteousness that could be seen. In fact, they flaunted their righteousness in front of people to impress people. Theirs was an ugly, paltry, stilted kind of legalism. But Jesus exhibited a brand of righteousness that was new and different. Jesus' life was a ballet of beauty and truth. It was an opus of heartfelt love and inward purity. And when the disciples looked at Jesus for the first time, they saw true righteousness. But it was something that they could never imitate. You know, the righteousness of the Pharisees was something that you modeled. It was something that you could copy. It was something that you tried to mimic. But how do you mimic true righteousness? This beauty of truth and love and the combination of the two, the blending of the two. You see, righteousness is not a movement that you can choreograph. 
Now, and I'm going to kind of shock you. But I could never be a good dancer. Number one, I don't have any rhythm. But, but number two, I could never be a good dancer because you can't live out what you don't have in you. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you've got to have it in you. You've got to have that rhythm. You've got you to have it going in order to, to live it out and to let it go. This is why the Spirit is our key to righteousness. The love of Jesus lived out is the result of the Spirit that's been planted in. The Holy Spirit, Jesus ascended to the Father. We no longer see Him because of righteousness, because the Holy Spirit now has been sent. He, he's the righteousness that's been implanted in us. And now it is the Spirit of God who lives out the righteousness of Jesus through us. Jesus goes to the Father, but now the Spirit comes to our hearts. And the Spirit is convicting the world of true righteousness. And then the Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, we, we live in a world where the wicked prosper, the righteous are persecuted, Good people get the short end of the stick. And we want God to judge individual sinners, don't we? That guy who cuts you off in the traffic. We want to call lightning down from heaven. I mean, this is just the way we want it to work. But that's not the way God God does it. Instead, here's what God's done. God has heaped up all of the sin from all of the time. And he's heaped up all of the sin and he's put it in one pile. And with one bold stroke, he has judged sin. He has settled the score for all time. And where did he pile that sin up? Where did he judge sin? At the cross. At the cross. On the cross, the world was declared guilty. The sin of the world was placed on Jesus' innocent shoulders Our sin was condemned to death. All sin was condemned to death on the cross. The price Jesus paid forgave us. And then it did something else. It defeated our accuser. Satan, the ruler of this world. In fact, the judgment that's yet to come is a mere formality. It's just the implementation of the judgment that's already occurred. And today the Holy Spirit is grabbing hearts and bringing people under the shadow of the cross and teaching us what real judgment is because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, verse 12 tells us, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, at times (laughs) there's no need to tell a person a particular truth since they can't digest it anyway. And so why waste your breath on your teenagers? (laughs) Well, Jesus knew the disciples here were sort of like teenagers. They were in overload, and so he says, there are many things I want to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. I'll wait. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, Holy Spirit will tell you these things. For he will guide you into all truth, For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. The Spirit's job is to to catch us up on those things that Jesus would have told us had we been able to digest it at the time. 
But the Holy Spirit fills in the blanks. He tells us the rest of the story. The Spirit guides us into all truth. He is our teacher. Oh boy, we have earthbound, error-prone minds. God's truth, in contrast, is heavenly and holy. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand the things of God. You know, it's interesting here to compare this verse with chapter 14, verse 26. There we're told that the Spirit will bring to their remembrance what Jesus spoke. What's that? That's the Gospels, right? Four Gospels. Here we're told that he will guide us into all truth. That's the epistles of the New Testament. And he will tell us things to come. That's the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation. And so in these verses, we're we're being told that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us and give us insight into all of the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Revelation. Well, in addition, verse 14 says, He will glorify me. Here again is the Holy Spirit's job. He'll glorify Jesus. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And this is so important. You see, the Holy Spirit's message is always in harmony with the teaching and nature of Jesus. The Spirit of God always syncs up to the Son of God. I've got a little iPhone and I stick it, you know, in the, put the little thing in and stick it into my computer and it syncs up. Everything kind of interrelates. Well, the things that Jesus says, the things the Spirit says, will always sync up. They'll always be in harmony. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. He he tells us he takes what is mine and he declares it to you, Jesus says. In other words, wherever the Spirit guides us, Jesus has already taken us. Never forget that. He's not going to guide you somewhere where Jesus hasn't taken you. Or Jesus has told you not to go. That's not the Holy Spirit. He says, a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now this little while interval that Jesus mentions may refer to the three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Or it could refer to maybe a little longer interval between the time of his ascension to heaven and the rapture of the church when we will see him again. Just don't get tripped up by this phrase, little while. Remember, a a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. Time is relative to God. In light of eternity, 2,000 years is is but a nanosecond. Boy, I'm 52 years old, but it seems like I'm just getting started. It's just all relative to you. Ever noticed how 30 minutes in a dentist chair or 30 minutes on a treadmill feels like months while 30 minutes with your sweetheart flies by like seconds? Have you ever noticed this? Time is relative. Verse 17. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. You're getting the impression here they're just not catching a lot of what Jesus is saying. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. 
They were already confused. And yet no one was humble enough to admit it and ask Jesus for a further explanation. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He's obviously here speaking of his crucifixion followed by his resurrection. He says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. You know, a woman with four or five kids is proof of what Jesus is saying. It's true. If a woman's got four or five kids, that means that apparently the joy, the glee that follows the birth of a baby is worth the few grunts that it takes to get him here. Or she wouldn't have done it another three or four times. Apparently it's worth it. And I can think of no other experience on earth in life where the pendulum swings quite so far so fast. I'll never forget when Zach was born. Kathy's telling me, I- I'm calling this off. I don't want to have this baby. I want to leave. I want to go home. This is not good. And then the baby's born and she's sitting there cuddling that baby and she's already talking about when we're going to have the next one. Incredible. One moment she's screaming, never again. Five seconds later, after that baby's born, the woman's in sheer elation. This was the swing that the disciples experienced on that first Easter morning. When all of their fears vanished in the hope of the resurrection. I mean, they were in that little room, you know, hiding, afraid, fearful for their lives. And then suddenly Jesus appears and he says, peace to you. And and in his appearance, all of their fears dissipate. They vanish into thin air. And you know what? I believe there's another experience that will rival this. I believe your first five seconds in heaven are going to more than make up for any and all of the pain you've experienced here on earth. I think the moment you leave this world and you enter into the gate through the gates of heaven, you're going to have this same pendulum swing. You're going to go from sorrow to utter elation and joy. Verse 23, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And I'm sure they had prayed to the Father, but never in the name of the Son. This is why it's important for us to pray in Jesus' name. They had never trusted Jesus to intercede for them in their prayers. I don't get this. Why, why did people pray to the saints? Why, why do people uh, go to the saints or 
Mother Mary or what do they pray through these people? Don't they know Jesus has more clout than Mother Mary or the saints? If I can pray in Jesus' name, why am I wasting time with the saints and with Mary? Jesus says, don't pray in the name of the saints or pray through Mary. Pray through me, through the Son. The disciples had never trusted Jesus to intercede for them in their prayers. And yet after his ascension to heaven, this became Jesus' chief ministry. This is what Jesus is doing today. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. It's going to be funny when you get to heaven, you start asking the saints, you know, hey, thank you for helping me with my prayers. And they say, well, your prayers? We, didn't, we, didn't hear your, we weren't listening to your prayers. We were up here praising God. We didn't know you were praying. But Jesus is in heaven, and he's listening to your prayers. This is his job. He is your advocate with the Father. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is listening to you. He is hearing you. And he's interceding on your behalf to get your prayers answered. He takes our request to God. And he says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. You know, he's telling them, I'll intercede for you, but it's not because the Father doesn't love you and want to answer your prayers. He does. What comforting words to the disciples. The Father himself loves you. You're not just loved by the Son. You're loved by the Father as well. He says, again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And his disciples said to him, See now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. You get the sense that the disciples were just trying to impress Jesus and they didn't really have a clue as to what he was talking about. Jesus must have sensed it too. He answered them, Do you now believe? Verse 32, Indeed the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus will experience what you and I will also experience sooner or later. Friends will let you down. People you thought you could count on, brothers and sisters in Christ, will abandon you in your hour of need, but the Father will always be there for you. For God will never let you down. Jesus experienced that, and so will you. Well, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. (laughs) what Jesus said to his disciples is true for us all life in this world will not be smooth sailing in the world you will have tribulation for a follower of Jesus this world is hostile territory you can count on it you will take your licks you will absorb some jabs at times you will feel like the devil's dartboard but in the midst of the tribulation Jesus promises stabilization. He promises to give you his peace. He guarantees us peace. 
Here's a great definition of the peace of God. It's the possession of adequate resources. I'm going to read that to you again because at first you missed the implication. It's the possession of adequate resources. In other words, peace is knowing that I already have whatever I'm going to need for the challenges I'll inevitably face. That's peace. When you know you have adequate resources on board, you can rest. You can be at peace. You can be assured. I like that. It's the possession of adequate resources. With God's peace, you can tackle life head on. Because you have the confidence that you've got what you're ever going to need. Notice Jesus also assures us that he has overcome the world. When the great French reformer, Theodore Beza, was brought before the king, he made this statement. Sire, but we got a picture of Theodore Beza. What an interesting cat, Theodore Beza. Hate to meet him in a dark alley. Here's what, when he had, when he had to face the king to give defense for his faith, here's what Beza said. He said, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church to endure blows and not to strike them. But please remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. (laughs) I like that. You know, the Protestant reformers in England, they had a motto that they lifted from the burning bush passage in in Exodus. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. That, That was their motto, the motto for their church. And this is how you really have to close every chapter in church history. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. Though the world beats at us and rips us asunder, we are not consumed. Oh, when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated the vast forces that nailed him to the cross. And now we also are overcomers when we put our faith in him. Jesus has overcome the world, and because he has, you will too. Well, chapter 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, John 17, what an incredible chapter. This chapter is often called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. This is what Jesus prayed just prior to his arrest in the garden. You remember the prayer in Luke chapter 22? The prayer that Jesus concluded, not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember that prayer? This was the prelude of that prayer, John 17. Here Jesus pours out his heart. And by the end of this prayer, he is pouring, his pores are oozing with sweat like great drops of blood. You remember that from Luke? He's pouring out his heart and his pores will be pouring sweat. The intensity here in this prayer. It's an emotional moment in the Garden of Gethsemane or the Garden of Crushing, as the word means. Like an olive, Jesus is being squeezed here. And this is the prayer that comes out, John chapter 17. I've heard it said, if you really want to know someone's heart, listen to them pray. We learn a lot about Jesus by studying this prayer. The walk from the upper room across the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane is now complete. The disciples have put out their fire 
They've unrolled their sleeping bags. They're ready for a good night's sleep. But Jesus has now walked off. And he's bearing his heart in prayer. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus had always been on a strict timetable. Three times earlier, in John 2 verse 4, in John 7 verse 30, and in John 8 verse 20, we're told his hour had not yet come. But here, he prays, Father, the hour has come. I hope you realize, Jesus refused to take his cues from people. He was never pressured by circumstances. Never hassled or pushed into a premature maneuver. Jesus' timing was always impeccable because he set his watch to the Father's clock. You know, I'm discovering that if you don't have a plan for how you're going to use your time, people will plan your time for you. The key to counting for Christ is not doing it all, but following God's call. Do what the Father says when he tells you to do it. Now Jesus prays to the Father that the hour has come to glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. You remember the cross. We talked about this earlier. The cross was Jesus' moment of glory. It's what he came in the world to accomplish. Jesus' obedience to the cross brought his Father great glory. But it was after the cross that the Father glorified the Son. For when he ascended into heaven, we're told that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he was crowned with great glory. And you know that glory was what he looked forward to as, his, as he was laid on that roughed out timber, as they drove those spikes through his hands and through his feet. He was looking, not not at that moment, but he was looking ahead to the glory he would know with his Father. We're told this in Hebrews 12, verse 2. There it says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the pain because he eyed the prize. The glory of the Father got him through the glory of the cross. You should remember that the next time you go through a fiery trial. That it's for the joy set before us that we can endure. In verse 2, Jesus prays, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice, eternal life is not so much longevity of life as it is a quality of life. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is knowing Him. This is eternal life. It's knowing Jesus. You see, Jesus is eternal. So a relationship with Jesus is everlasting. A a person lives forever who lives with Jesus because Jesus is forever. Eternal life doesn't begin when you get to heaven, friend. Eternity starts the moment you open your heart to Jesus. That's when eternal life begins. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus recalled 
or we recall Jesus' final words from the cross, it is finished. He had finished the work the Father had given him to do. And Jesus always finishes what he starts. Unlike you and me, we can go through our garage and we can point to all kinds of unfinished projects. No, Jesus always finishes what he starts. And here's the good news. That includes you. And that includes me. And that includes the work he started in us. He's going to see it to completion. One more thing here. I love this. Jesus says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Are all the blind people healed? Were all the sick people in the world cured? Was, was everyone in the world walking with God at the time? No. But Jesus was able to say, I have finished the work that you had given me to do. Even Jesus didn't do it all. Didn't try to do it all. He did only those things that the Father had given him to do. And now he says that he has finished that work. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem, but this world was not his home. Jesus hailed from heaven. And here he's longing for home, I think. Jesus had laid aside his eternal glory. He had humbled himself and become a man. But now that his mission is almost complete, I think he's looking forward to returning to that glory. He's longing for home. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them, given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And you know, throughout this prayer, there's a beautiful harmony and a unity between the Father and the Son. What belongs to Jesus belongs to the Father. What, what you've given me were yours, but now they're mine. And there's this seamless unity, this seamless relationship between the Father and the Son. I think it's beautiful. He says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now, now here's the truth that we need to keep in our minds. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the eve of his departure from this world, what is Jesus' concern? What is pressing on his heart? What does he pray for? He prays for the unity of his followers. This is his greatest concern that his men stay together, that they stay united, that there's a harmony between them. And boy, you look at the church today and you wonder what in the world happened. For we are fraught with schism and division and competition. And you wonder, where's the unity? If the church is the body of Christ, then in the eyes of God we must be uncoordinated 
and deformed and spastic. Even the early church father, St. Augustine, he got so exasperated with the divisions and the schisms that had erupted in his day, he wrote these words. He said, The clouds roll with thunder that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth, and these frogs sit in their marsh and croak. We are the only Christians. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 3 to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to understand this. We cannot create spiritual unity and harmony. We can't create it. Isn't this world an example that unity can't be created through human genius and human you know, ingenuity? We don't create the unity that we enjoy. It is a gift from God. It is supernatural. It is the unity of the Spirit. Unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But here's what we can do. We can wreck it. We can undermine that unity. We can work against it. That's why he tells us to, we can't, not to make unity, not to unify yourselves. He says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is our job. To maintain our unity. To don't let anything come between us or to get in the way of our unity. You see, we can avoid favoritism and cliquishness and judgmentalism. We can be kind and we can be tolerant and we can be forgiving and we can give each other the benefit of the doubt and we can cut each other some slack. And you know what we can do? We could even love each other. We could go a long way toward maintaining the unity of the Spirit. I think it's interesting that Jesus prayed that we would be one just as He and His Father were one. You know, the Godhead is a perfect blend of both unity and diversity. God is one God. Of the same substance. But he exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons are equal, but they are all very different. And they, and they occupy different roles. And likewise, our oneness should be a combination of both unity and diversity. You see, oneness doesn't ignore our uniqueness and our distinctives. We can have unity and yet still enjoy our diversity. Oneness is the realization that our commonality, our one commonality is greater than all of our differences. And it's when we're determined to focus on Jesus, that's what causes everything else to fade away and to pale in comparison. I love the unity we have in our church here. I laugh sometimes. I tell my friends, you know, I don't know of anywhere else in the world where a group of people like our church can get together without a fight breaking out, except at Calvary Chapel. Because, you know, there's, there's a unity here, because we're all very diverse, we're all very different from each other, but the glorious thing is that the commonality that we hold is so much greater than our differences. It keeps us together and draws us together. And our diversity becomes our strength rather than our, our Achilles heel. Hey, Christianity 
is not synchronized swimming. Aren't you glad? Wow. Of all the sports in the world, synchronized swimming is the hokiest. If we've got any synchronized swimmers out here tonight, please forgive me for this, but synchronized swimming is a complete waste of time. Synchronized swimming, come on the TV, I turn the baby off. Synchronized swimming, it's hokey. Two women, they're dressed alike, they get these gals that even look alike, they jump in the pool at the same time, they splash together, they mimic each other's moves, they even mimic each other's little gestures. The goal in synchronized swimming is uniformity. Whereas pairs figure skating is just the opposite. They, they skate in tandem. They don't copy each other. They're not mimicking each other's movements. Their, their movements complement each other. And because of it, pairs figure skating is a beautiful sport. Synchronized swimming is hokey. But, but you see, this is the difference between uniformity and unity. Synchronized swimming is uniformity. Bad. Pairs figure skating is unity. Beautiful. Last night, I attended the 50th birthday party for one of our Nigerian sisters, Dalapo. They invited me to the party. I went. And wow, did I have a good time. I came home and I told Kathy, I said, you know, honey, I'm not accusing God of making any mistakes here. Uh, you know, definitely, God makes no mistakes. But, but sometimes I wonder, I should have been born Nigerian. Because I had so much fun last night. Nigerians, man, they, 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 they value family and faith and life and laughter and fun. I had a wonderful time last night. Now I got up in front of all of them, and I told everybody, I said, you know, I'm kind of new to Nigerian culture. You probably can tell that. And they all nodded. They said yes. You know. But I had so much fun. I had a great time. And though I was from a very different culture, there was such a unity. And we prayed together, and we laughed together, and we had a great time together. I felt such a great unity with my Nigerian family, though there was an obvious diversity. You know, we are diverse, but we're also united. And you know, I went home. Here's what I went home feeling last night. I, I felt so enriched by their diversity. I felt so enriched by other people who saw things, valued the same things, but yet responded and saw things differently than I did. And that enriched me. That made me better. It, it, it cleared my focus. It gave me a sharper focus. You know, diversity makes us stronger, not weaker. If we can maintain our unity within that diversity. God has gifted us all very differently. And the goal as Christians is not to become clones. God doesn't make Christian clones. God doesn't want us to be synchronized saints. Jesus prayed for our unity, not our uniformity. 
We need to merge our differences and blend them under the overarching goal to bring glory to His Son. Verse 12 tells us, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. All the twelve disciples, they denied the Lord. They all ran away, but they were kept by the power of God, and they made their way back home eventually. Judas was the only truly lost soul of the bunch. And notice here, Jesus calls Judas son of perdition. There's only one other person in the Bible called by that title. Do you know who it is? 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the Antichrist is also referred to as the son of perdition. Well, in verse 13, Jesus continues his prayer. He says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice the goal of Jesus. It's your joy. It's to spread his joy. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. On the one hand, I'm a little disappointed at that. Sometimes I think it would be easier, just the moment you get saved, boom, you get raptured right then. Get saved, get raptured, get out of here. Don't have to worry about the hassles and the trials and the maturity and the growth and all of those things, but you know, that's just not... God's plan. His desire is that we be in the world, and that means vulnerable to its troubles and susceptible to the trials and accessible to other people. As the old saying goes, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. I don't think you can improve upon that. That's our lot as Christians, in the world, but not of the world. We can blend in culturally. We're in the world as long as we stick out spiritually. We're not to be of the same thinking and same attitude and same heart and same spirit. We need to be in the world building bridges, but if we're not... we can. I said that wrong. We can be in the world building bridges... But if we're of the world, no one will see the need to cross the bridges that we build. We need to live for God boldly and attractively. And we need to place on display godly attributes and alternatives. Here's a great way of thinking of it. For a boat to be useful, it has to be in the water, does it not? You don't want a boat that's not... If a boat's not in the water, it's not fulfilling its purpose. For a boat to be useful, it has to be in the water. But let the water get in the boat and you've got problems. And likewise, the church needs to be in the world. But if the world ever gets into the church, that's when you have problems. That's when our witness sinks. In verse 16, Jesus prays for his disciples. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart. And people who are absorbed in the truth are set apart unto God. They become attentive to God. They become different people. They march to a different drummer. We are set apart through the truth of God. For the truth of God is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of this world. 
He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And, and boy, here's where we could just sort of camp out for weeks. For how did Jesus come into the world? Well, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 10, read it when you get home. It details the attitude behind the incarnation. And there it says, let the same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Adopt the same attitude. Rather than flaunt his status, Jesus came of no reputation. Rather than flex his muscle, Jesus came to serve. Rather than focus on his superiority, he identified with our weaknesses. Rather than force his own will, he submitted to the will of the Father. And this is how we need to conduct ourselves in this world. Identifying with others. Making ourselves of no reputation. Becoming servants. Submitting to God's will. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone. Check this out now. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is an incredible verse. Did you know you are mentioned in the Bible? Did you know that Larry is mentioned in the Bible? Did you know that hope is mentioned in the Bible? Do you know that Carolyn is mentioned in the Bible? You are. You're mentioned right here. You are part of those who will believe in me, Jesus says. 2,000 years ago, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was crucified, Jesus mentioned you specifically in his prayer. He's praying for his disciples yet future. John and Chloe and Bobby and Joe and Nate and Kendra. He's mentioning us all right here. He's praying for his disciples yet future that they too will trust in him. And the unity that Jesus desires in his church, he wants us to experience it here tonight. That same unity. The unity he desires, it stretches across continents and down through the ages. You know, a man was visiting a mental hospital one day, and he noted that there were just three guards in charge of hundreds of dangerous, crazy people, dangerous inmates. And he asked one of the guards, he said, man, he said, don't you ever fear that these people will realize their numbers and overpower you and escape? And that's when the fellow replied, oh no, lunatics never unite. Lunatics never unite. Hey, we in the church need to smarten up. We need to pay attention. We need to get it together. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. God wants us united and working in harmony with each other. We can accomplish more together than we ever can apart. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them, as you have loved me. If you're walking down the street and you see a lone penny in the middle of the street, there's a good chance that you won't bother to pick it up. 
But if you see a handful of pennies, or better yet, if you see several rolls of pennies, then you might reach down and you might pick them up and put them in your pocket. The point is, is that we as Christians can attract a lot more attention in larger groups than we can just off by ourselves. Bring a lost person into a community of believers that love each other and that love Jesus and are experiencing this unity. And trust me, they will want to learn the secret. They'll want more for themselves. Verse 24, Father, Jesus prays, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had spent this time with his disciples in their environment and he longs for the day when his friends can come home with him and they can see him in his environment and in his glory. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What a 